0: listening to Driving Law, a podcast by Kyla Lee about all things related to the rules of the road. Hello and welcome to another episode of Driving Law. I am Kyla Lee at Acumen Law and with me is my co-host, Paul Doroshenko.
1: Hello,
2: Kyla Lee. So nice to talk to you.
0: Yes, nice to talk to you as well on our second to last podcast of the year.
2: The last one before Christmas.
0: last podcast before Christmas, and I did get you the best Christmas present ever. Um,
2: I'm I'm so excited about it.
0: Just like to plug everybody, please listen to On the Coast uh, with Gloria Makarenko this afternoon, because uh, you might hear a special Prairie Paul treat. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, but I don't know when, so you have to listen to the whole, the whole two hours.
2: Well, we'll see if they play the whole song. I'm excited about it. I'm excited about it. Oh, okay. my goodness. Um, So let's thrilling. Go.
0: Let's talk about joint submissions.
2: We have a lot to talk about, eh? So many things to talk, to talk about, and it's surprising. Here we are once again um, flooded with topics but you sent me this joint submission case and i have so i have so many questions
0: i don't have questions i mean i'm not surprised it's a pretty important case Um, it's important yeah so what happened in this case was crown and defense uh jointly agreed for a guy to plead guilty to two charges of driving while prohibited one from vancouver and one from vernon um and that um there would be a joint submission for I think 120 days jail time and a thousand dollars fine and a three year driving pro- prohibition. All of this was to be concurrent.
2: Yep, um, and uh, went in to do the plea. I don't know who the judge is, which is like my first big question. And the judge uh, didn't uh, didn't follow the joint submission of both counsel, and it was a like a, a clear joint submission case. And those are magic words, right? Yep. Um, the term joint submission are magic words in law. They have been my entire career. Uh, there's yep. been the ebb and flow of how they've been considered over the course of the last 24 years. Uh, yep. But they they're important words, right? It means that you're coming into court with submitting to the court the exact same thing with respect to a sentence.
0: Yep. And there was a recent case, well not recent now, there was a case several years ago from the Supreme Court of Canada, a case called Anthony Cook. And in Anthony Cook, the Supreme Court of Canada basically said if a judge is presented with a joint submission, they pretty much have to go along with it unless the joint submission itself is so unhinged that it would call the entire administration of justice into question.
2: You think of terms that are used in court. You know, there's these terms of art. There's so many legal fictions that it's uh, sometimes, you know, you shake your head and wonder about the justice system. But we've got this term that's now become a term, you know, and is used in Anthony Cook, unhinged. Um, and uh, taking it at its face value, uh, you know, what does it mean? It means that it's just like completely out of whack. Yeah. Um, and th- there may be ways that that happens. Like you might have junior counsel on one side, uh, and counsel on the other side who's sort of taking advantage of them or something like that. But the idea of uh, of uh, the term unhinged take you on a specific legal meaning here uh, is uh, was of course interesting coming out of the uh, Anthony Cook decision.
0: Yes, so the judge said a lot of things when he uh, decided not to go along with the joint submission in this case, which he called unhinged. Um, and he says, Most joint submissions do not require examination. In fact, all but very few of them should require any examination. Um, And the court says, but if a joint submission causes a judge concern, as this joint submission has, the process is important. And then he basically says, expected counsel to justify the joint submission, to explain to him why the joint submission was reasonable. And he he grounded it in this notion of a quid pro quo. That the accused gives up, obviously the accused is giving up things like their right to a trial and advancing arguments and things like that, but that the Crown, in making a joint submission, must also be giving up and gaining something at the same time. So the accused gains the certainty of the outcome and perhaps a slightly better deal than if they were convicted, but he really seized upon the Crown not getting anything out of going along with this joint submission. This
2: bothers me when I see comments like this because I it's Similar, I mean, this is a discussion that you and I had the other day about Crown having their hands tied in sex assault cases with respect to entering stays, for example. Okay. Um, you know, there, when two counsel come to something, they know that file and they know that file so well. And I don't like the idea of um, what I call manager syndrome, when you have to go and ask somebody else uh, for permission to do something on the file when you're exercising good judgment and you know the file and it it we tend to see bad decisions made when somebody has to go and try and explain it to the boss unless the boss is the type who's going to defer to your judgment right um and this is um the court basically saying you've got to explain to me despite the fact that you know the case well and you know uh, yeah, you've got to explain to me why there was something for something. Yeah. Which is not part of the process, right? Like, you know, it doesn't have to be giving up something for something. Okay. You just come to an agreement for it. But you shouldn't have to explain it.
0: Well, there's should also, be
2: deferred to, in my view.
0: There's also, like, this inherent quid pro quo in a joint submission, especially when you're combining two files into one, because with a joint submission, you have... um uh, you have the cost and, and the benefit savings of not having trials. You know, that saves court time. It saves uh, the attendance of witnesses. It saves money. Um, it, uh, it gives the system confidence that files are moving along, right? If everybody scheduled every trial, every file for trial, our justice system would collapse. We would not be able to accommodate every single trial that needed to be scheduled. Like, I mean, if defense counsel really wanted to, like, throw a wrench in the system, they would just set everything down for trial, negotiate nothing out.
2: Inevitably, there's always something, right? And it's apparent on the face of it. Like, that is just apparent on the face of it. There's no justification that needs to be provided for that exchange. Because anytime, you know, it's just sometimes uh, uh, Joe Biden was asked about uh, January 6th and whether or not it was an insurrection. He just said, well, like, obviously, it's apparent on the face of it. Um, you know why do you have to have any further inquiry than that? It's apparent on the face of it when somebody's coming in the crowd's accepting a plea you know somebody's coming in and making a submission that there has been some exchange and thought and put into it something put into it uh, yeah. to get to that point
0: yep so the um, court in um, Anth- in Anthony Cook said that you know that this is the inherent quid pro quo that exists with the joint submission. So this judge departs from the joint submission in this case. And uh, thankfully, the accused appeals. And uh, the B.C. Supreme Court uh, put the system back in order.
2: Well, yeah, I mean, it's uh, allowed the appeal and reinstated the joint submission. Um, and, and, and the thing that concerns me about it is, okay, so... When I started practicing, and I told you this before, joint submissions were sacrosanct. Um, you'd go into court, and a judge would not even make any inquiry into it. Joint submission, okay? I don't even need to hear anything most of the time, yeah, um, because I know you guys have gone through it and you figured it out. Um, yeah, you know, I've got two smart lawyers in front of me, and they and they've figured it out. And then I started noticing some departures and then you're thinking to yourself okay well they departed from the joint submission they did it in my favor here maybe i was a little too persuasive and when that happens you're sitting there and your clients you know you feel like your clients looking at you going well why did you have this joint submission well you know the prosecutor soft sold it because we had a joint submission (laughs) and the judge jumped the joint submission and i'm not happy about it uh you know from my perspective, it undermines the confidence that your client has in you, and it undermines the possibility or probability of future deals because crown get cold feet. They're saying to themselves, if it's a joint submission, I'm not going to, you know, I I I'm I shouldn't have to spend, I shouldn't have to worry about a judge jumping it.
0: Well, and also, you know, as, as defense counsel advising your client, you know, yeah, the judge could go higher. So there's a risk if you take this plea more people are going to go, well, if there's the same type of risk, if I take this plea, then I may as well just schedule it for trial.
2: So anytime a judge goes sideways, even if it's been in the favor of my client, I have had a sick feeling about it. And I started watching it more and more and more over the course of the decade and a half until Anthony Cook came out. Right. And for a little while there, every time I was making a joint submission, every judge was referring to it. And almost like reluctantly like they'd been scolded or something it was really quite funny it was strange strange thing yeah. that happens when there's a new decision right
0: speaking of unhinged you had a little bit of an unhinged moment in court when anthony cook came out because you were in the middle of a sentencing that was maybe going to go off the rails on a joint submission
2: yeah and i was
0: got overexcited
2: i know the prosecutor said i, I se- seemed like i was going to jump across the desk um uh, <laughs> the uh but I was upset, right? Because I, again, I, at, at that point in my career, I had watched the value of a joint submission slide. Yeah. Um, and uh, it, here we are. I was in the middle of. I had entered the plea for the guy. We had put the joint submission before the judge. The judge started to say, "Well, I don't know if I should accept this. This seems, uh, you know, not not consistent with the other cases," and which it wasn't because you know there was lots of quid pro quo there. Um, but it wasn't something that I felt I should have to explain. But uh, again, the the law was and still is that if the judge is suggesting to you or or asking you saying, look, I'm not sure about this joint submission, you're entitled to do a couple of things. You're entitled to withdraw the plea. You're entitled to come back another day and, uh, and try and explain it. If the judge, I think even if you've come back and explained it, the judge is still saying that you should have the opportunity to withdraw the plea. Maybe that is the law. I'm not sure anymore, but um the point is that, uh, you know, it, it, it had become a little bit vague and I was in the middle of this one where I had said, well, I want to come back and explain to you and I'm going to bring some case law. And then Anthony Cook came out and so it was like, okay, saved, saved by the bell. Yep. Uh, and I went into court you know, I sent it to him, went into court and I, 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 I feel bad that I was, you know, basically, um, so strongly worded in court, but I, the point was that the courts had started to depart from what was the test and Anthony Cook put it back into, into position that it was before. And, and you, you have judges, you know, at that point there's already judges. This was 2016. Um, there's judges who were judges who weren't lawyers when I started being a lawyer. And you're, you know, sitting there thinking to yourself, you guys missed this whole process of the development of the law
0: hundred percent. So that's that um, important case. I don't think we said the name of it. Uh, the case is called DAFO, D-A-F-O-E. It is 2023 BCSC 2252. So if any of the out there listening have a joint sufficient ever and it starts to go off the rails, just wave that case around. And
2: um, Well, it's unfortunate. Now you got to wave that case and Anthony Cook. It Should have been Anthony Cook should have been the last word on it because it really is a very clear decision. the The Supreme Court of Canada has made it as abundantly clear as they possibly could. Don't depart yeah. from a joint submission. You're probably never going to have a time in your career as a judge that you should be departing from a joint submission.
0: I can't imagine a time in which uh, that would be that would be reasonable. Um, I think you have to put faith in counsel that they're going to yeah. do it yeah. yeah. They know the case. And for that one judge who made me cry in my car after court that one time, uh, I was right.
2: (laughs) Yeah. Well, well, you were a very junior lawyer at that point. Yes. Um,
0: Uh, He's died, so he'll never know I was right. But I'm still right.
2: (laughs) There you go. We Uh, all die.
0: Now, moving on to... Speaking of death, Paul. um, Oh, that's a really terrible transition. Okay. Do you remember last Christmas the um, horrific bus crash that happened in the Okanagan where yeah. poor people And
2: Yeah, ter- ter- terrible transition. Um, yeah, that was a miserable thing. That was on the Okanagan connector, um, which if you're listening and you're outside of BC or you don't know this highway, um, I would say that in, in my opinion, it's somewhat treacherous uh, when it's snowing um, it happened on Christmas Eve and it was a, uh, a a bus, you know, the Greyhounds don't exist anymore, but there are other bus companies. I think it was a Calgary based bus company, if I'm not mistaken.
1: Um,
2: and they, uh, they went out and uh, it was snowing Mm -hmm. and, you know, the, the conditions were certainly an issue and there was this bus accident. And I remember, I think I texted you about it, uh, at the time because I, all I was thinking, because you and I know this highway, we've both driven it, and, and we've both driven it in snowy days, um, and it is at, at nighttime, and it is frightening. And I often think that the people in Kelowna are basically trapped from from the rest of BC when this is happening, because it is a high mountain pass. Mm-hmm. So you drive up onto a high plateau, and when you get to those high plateaus, and it snows, it's not like snow on the prairies, which is treacherous. Is a different thing. And when it's coming down, you can have a meter of snow and you cannot see the edge of the road a lot of the time. And you're, you're, you're praying, you're just hoping that you're not going to drive off the road as you drive. And I've driven that in the fog and been down to 20, 30 kilometers an hour and terrified that somebody was going to come flying up behind me who has, you know, got more confidence than brains.
0: So the, um, BC Prosecution Service, a year after the incident, um, or just under a year after the incident, has come out with a statement confirming that there will be no charges in relation to this incident. And you and I had talked last year after the the crash about what could possibly happen, you know, whether it could be dangerous driving, driving without due care and attention, some sort of other traffic um, motor vehicle act violation, um, and... Yeah. Turns out it's going to be nothing.
2: Sometimes it's just an accident. Um, So why does it take a year? Um, That's the first issue I think we should probably explain to people.
0: I'll tell you why it takes a year. Um, In a case like this, there's a lot of things that have to be investigated. Um, Issues of sobriety, road conditions. They're going to do collision reconstruction. They're going to get expert analysis. Um, It's a heavy-duty file, and this is the type of file.
2: Mechanical inspections on the bus
0: and more than one person is going to be looking at the file. This is also a case with numerous witnesses. Um
2: Everybody's on the bus. Yep.
0: Yeah. And so there's also lots of people who have to be interviewed, medical records from all of those individuals have to be obtained to determine the extent of and severity of injuries to determine the significance of, of things. Um, You know, when the Crown looks at whether to approve charges, they look at two things, right? They look, first of all, At whether or not there's a substantial likelihood of conviction um, for whatever offense they're considering, but also whether a prosecution's in the public interest. And that involves a consideration of all sorts of stuff, like the severity of, of injuries and deaths, the likelihood of getting a significant sentence, how much public resources would have to be spent on a prosecution in order to get a conviction. And then comparing that to the type of sentence, also the likelihood of repeat conduct, all those types of factors.
2: Yeah, so there's a huge number of considerations, and there's also a limitation period uh, under the Motor Vehicle Act. There's a one year limitation period for offenses, um, and uh, driving without due care and attention, for example, would have been a offense. Uh, in the Criminal Code, there's a one year limitation period for summary matters. Um, it you know they don't necessarily have to prosecute it summarily. Uh, and so they could lay a charge as an indictment as a later date, depending on what it is. But most of the time that's the target, right? You're going to try and get it wrapped up and, and a charge laid before a year has passed. And so a year has passed and people are pretty upset. There was, uh, some, uh, individuals interviewed on CBC. Uh, they felt nobody's being held responsible, uh, and, uh, family members who were, uh, were, you know, of the deceased or people who were injured. And I get it. You know, I understand that people are going to feel that way after after something like this, but sometimes it's an accident. And on that highway, you cannot predict necessarily how the weather is going to change when you're up there. And uh, you and I both know this too. You can be on that highway and the weather changes while you're on the highway. In fact, I remember I was meeting uh, Grant Gottkotr once in, um, in Merritt and he rode his motorcycle up and this was... It, no longer in winter and it snowed on him while he was riding his bike across there um it just this is what happens on that highway so i think they have to take that into account and that's probably was a, a significant contributing factor um was the was the highway and you know we keep this highway open there was people working on the highway to try and keep it clear but you can clear that highway and 20 minutes later it can be another back to a situation where really you're probably trapped there and there's nowhere to turn off for much of it
0: Yep. and the other problem um is you know if you're charged under the motor vehicle act which this probably would have been like i don't think you can say that it's dangerous driving there was no evidence of anything particularly bad um if it was driving without due care and attention then What's the maximum sentence you can get, a $2,000 fine and six months in jail, which probably wouldn't even be the sentence because if you look at a lot of the injuries were caused by people not wearing their seatbelts on the bus, decisions that adults made about their own safety, not decisions that the driver made.
2: You don't have control of everybody in the bus. You know, you you can check and tell them all fasten your seatbelts and assume that they do, but... um. So, yeah, it's, uh, it was very unfortunate. It was tragic, particularly at the time, you know, people trying to get home or trying to get somewhere for the holidays. Uh, and, um, one could reasonably suspect that, um, there was a lot of pressure on that bus driver to get people home for their holidays, uh, and pressure from the company to make sure that they, they do it. Uh, and, um, might've been against their, well, I mean, certainly was in the end, right? But it might've been against their best judgment going out there. But there's been plenty of times in my life where I've thought, you know, I have to go somewhere, I have to do this and, and, you know, I get in my car and I drive on roads that are far from ideal and they were certainly far from ideal in this circumstance.
0: Think about like the, the length of time it would take to prosecute something like this for... And the number of defenses available to the driver, it just I can I can easily see why it wouldn't meet the charge approval standard.
1: Well,
2: witnesses in a bus, um, this is a circumstance that we've seen before in Canada. Witnesses in a bus are not people who are necessarily from Kelowna or Merritt, where the matter would go to trial. You're paid people to on the people on the bus sometimes are from out of the country. They're that you know foreigners who are traveling and have taken the bus we don't have trains from city to city like they do in europe and and people come and kind of expect that they can get around and they end up on the bus so you know how are you going to deal with those witnesses um they, they, there's just so many factors to it and you can um you know sometimes i'll tell you you and i go through mechanical reports on vehicles and this is one of my skills um that uh you know luckily i can spot these things but sometimes they discover problems with a vehicle that there's no driver or anybody else could have anticipated. You know, you and I had one, uh, a file years ago, where there was a recall on the vehicle and they did a mechanical inspection uh, on the vehicle or they they did a, uh, yeah, they did did a mechanical inspection on the vehicle, but there was a recall on the vehicle. They didn't uh, look it up. They hadn't looked up of the steering wheel coming off in people's hands and the vehicles creating exactly the facts that we had. And it wasn't something they looked at. They never looked at the steering wheel. The steering wheel came off in our client's hands. It, it came up the spindle and the vehicle careened away and my, our client couldn't do anything about it. And they hadn't caught that. And it was only, you know, us going through, uh, I guess it was me going through recalls on it that we discovered that that was what took place. Yep.
0: Well, so there you go. Kelowna bus crash. No charges laid. Now, before, Paul, we get to our next segment, I think it's time that we take a moment.
1: Ladies and gentlemen, let loose the law and justice crackin' Eric
0: mcgraw
1: ICBC should have listened to the wisdom of Mick Jagger. You can't always get what you want. Folks, this is the McGracken moment. So a good case just came out last week. It's called NAWA and ICBC, and it gives some context to what ICBC can request when they're processing claims for their enhanced care benefits, basically their no-fault benefits. So here's what happened. In this case, The applicant was involved in a couple of crashes and was seeking various benefits from ICBC. One of the benefits being paid was an income replacement benefit. And as the claim went on, ICBC wanted more information. They wanted income tax returns and they wanted other financial records for up to two years before the crash. The applicant didn't share those, and so ICBC suspended the payment of benefits. ICBC argued that they're entitled to whatever they want. Uh, Section 11 of the Insurance Vehicle Act says that an insured has to give ICBC the content required by the corporation. And so ICBC argued based on that, they wanted these returns and failure to provide them gives them the right to suspend benefits. Now, the Civil Resolution Tribunal, the CRT, disagreed. They said, ICBC, while you have a lot of power to get a lot of information, that information has to be necessary and material. And if you understand how income replacement benefits work, It's just a contract. So you prove what you're earning, you prove you're disabled, and there's a formula. They have to pay you a certain amount based on these objective facts. And so the CRT said, we don't understand how digging that far in the past is going to be necessary and material. And ICBC gave no explanation. So ICBC, you can't always get what you want.
0: All right, Paul, you know what time it is now.
2: Yes, I do. Let's get it on.
0: It's time for The Ridiculous Driver of the Week. week, 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 week. A surprising bestseller? The pinpoint method of cross-examination is catching on. Law firms and new litigators across Canada have caught on to cross-examination the pinpoint method. Kyla Lee's straightforward handbook that teaches you effective cross-examination skills. And this one actually has me, like, a little bit upset.
2: Yeah, it has me upset, too, um, for lots of reasons, Um, probably the same reasons you are upset, but it's still uh, a ridiculous driver. And so it's one that we should
0: about. So this incident involved a uh, police officer um, who allegedly drove his police vehicle into a nightclub in St. Louis.
2: It's an SUV, I think, like a Ford Explorer
0: or something like that. Yeah, it looks like it looks like an explorer or an escape. Anyway, yeah, and uh the vehicle crashed into the front of this this business, which I'm pretty sure was a gay bar. And yeah.
2: yeah. It was closed. They were closed and cleaning up.
0: Yeah.
2: Um okay. and uh yeah, the I guess the, the police vehicle was speeding. Um I don't know that lights were activated or anything like that or why, and it apparently swerved. Um, according to witnesses and there were witnesses and there is video uh, to avoid a parked car but it wasn't actually going to collide with the parked car in any event.
0: No. And uh, like they reconstructed the accident. It wasn't going to collide with the parked car Um, and so the officer allegedly to turn out of the way (laughs) of this other uh, of this um, other vehicle turns into and smashes into the front of this bar and then somehow the bar owner ends up arrested and charged with felony assault
2: yeah so the bar owners there cleaning up um, mm-hmm. I think along with his partner and you know you can imagine the shock of a police cruiser driving through the front of the bar yeah um, and uh, <laughs> you know this police SUV so you know he's in shock and apparently probably yells at the police officer and mm-hmm. um, and um, there's people who video it, right? But the uh, the police uh, apparently it seems quite obvious or have lied. The officers involved started, lied about what took place. He
0: swearing at the officer, and he smacks him in the chest, and is like, you know, basically, what the fuck are you doing? Is essentially, you know, what were you thinking? And that is this supposed felony assault. And they well, told and
2: the, the interesting thing about it is the video does not does not show him smacking him in the chest. That's the police. Yeah. version of it.
0: Yeah. And they also falsely tell him that speaking loudly is against the law. Pretty sure you're allowed to speak as loudly as you want on your own private property.
2: So this fellow was arrested, uh, taken to jail, and was awaiting bail on this felony assault um, of a police officer. And the alleged assault is, is uh, striking the police officer's chest, I guess, after, you know, I don't know if it was the same officer who was driving this vehicle, but it seems likely. And yelling at him, and of course, the video that uh, we know there's quite a bit of video apparently, uh, but the video that had been viewed by the uh, by the reporter who was reporting on it said there's no there's no video of of the police officer being struck in the chest, and there is video of the police officer saying, "You talk loudly to me. Uh, that's an a uh, uh, an offense, and I'm arresting you for it."
0: Uh, no, I'm sorry, but America, they love their freedom of speech. You don't get to pick and choose when you get your freedom of speech um, in America uh, and the... You
2: better not be expected to be perfect when a police cruiser comes ramming through police the front dogs. door of your gay bar.
0: nashes into the front door of your gay bar because let's not forget how Pride started and the Stonewall riots. Like, I'm sorry, but take four seconds to think about the, like, shared trauma of the queer community with police harassing gay bar owners and then put his actions in context just a little bit.
2: Yes. Um so ridiculous driver, uh ridiculous police department. Um, they should be ashamed of themselves. Uh it is uh it's it's absolutely disgusting based on what we're seeing in the reports here. And I don't give the police a pass anymore. You know, when I started practicing, the police wouldn't give their birthday events. I'd hear you know, the other side. And, you know, I try and weigh it in my brain and I would, I would very often just operate under the assumption that we had and that we're, we were taught. And it's really like was imparted to us as lawyers still in, at the beginning of my career, uh, that you shouldn't be calling into question the credibility of police officers, unless you've got something absolutely fantastic. Well, what we see now is so often when there's video, we find it's not how the police characterize it at all. And so I no longer feel that, that obligation or onus to give the police a pass or to operate under the assumption of, of, um, police honesty, uh, you know, and, and that has been completely undermined by the fact of video because so often we get the video and we find out the officers are mischaracterizing or lying.
0: Yep. Yep. So there you go. Ending the podcast on a passionate note. Uh, <laughs>
2: <laughs> Enjoy your Christmas, Kyla.
0: Yeah, you too. And if you need to reach us over the holidays about a driving law related issue, we will be manning the phones. So give us a call at 604 685 or find us online at VancouverCriminalLaw.com and come back next week for the last podcast of the year.